I'm going to invite you to get back to your seats. Good morning. My name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We've been in the book of Acts through this summer. Uh, next Sunday, we'll actually we'll take a pause. We'll finish in Acts 17, take a pause, and actually go through the book of Ruth uh, as we kind of hit little pause, and then we'll actually do a vision series and then pick back up into the story. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 34. You can find it on page 925 of the Church Bibles. If you don't have one, we love for you to grab a Bible that's in front of you underneath the chair. That's in front of you, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's yours to take. If you like, if you don't have one, we'd love for you to have and study God's Word. Before we get into the Scriptures, I just want to remind you, today is July 30th. We're hitting August in two days, which is just wild. But that also means uh, we have one month left of, our, left of our pledge drive or pledge campaign, and you heard Zach talk a little bit about that during the offering time. Uh, but if you are a regular attender or a member of our church we, do, we really do strongly encourage you to be able to consider prayerfully what you're going to give this upcoming fiscal year, or not upcoming, we began in July through next June, of what your general tithes and givings will be so that we might be able to, as leadership, consider the plans for not only this upcoming year, but for many years to go as we think about a building, as we think about the annex, as we think about staffing and ministries, uh, we want to be able to plan well and steward God's money well. So please do consider giving. Uh, you have that postcard. You can find it on our app. Uh, but do, please, as we think about August 31st being the deadline for that pledge, consider giving or consider prayerfully giving what you would commit this upcoming fiscal year. With that, I'm going to invite Micaiah, one of our youth. And I don't know if you've noticed, our youth have been really involved in our service this Sunday, uh, every fifth Sunday of the month. We have our youth uh, partake and serve in all variety of ways, offering, welcoming, our AV booth to worship. Uh, we want to be able to really encourage them and say that this is your church. And as they, as they have ownership, uh, as they serve, that they would be able to continue to love uh, the beautiful bride uh, that God has called us to be. And so uh, we are now into the second missionary journey. Last or two weeks ago, we looked at the first missionary journey of Paul. Now we're going right into the second missionary journey when he comes to the church of Philippi. And if you know me at all, Philippians is maybe my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, we've gone through it multiple times in my 14 years as pastor uh, because I love this book. And I think Paul probably didn't have favorites. Like parents are never supposed to have favorites. But I think this might have been his favorite church. And so... We get to see the birth of this church that's planted. So let's give attention to God's word as Micaiah reads this for us. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Micaiah. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would open up our eyes, that you would open up our ears and our hearts so that we might be able to be transformed by the gospel, the same gospel that came into Philippi. That same gospel, will it change us and transform us as it, as it did these three people that we have just read about? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you this morning, if there was one song that 
transformed and impact our society, what is that one song? Now, Zach might say Rapper's Delight or something like that, but Times actually said that the song of the century back in 1999 was a song called Strange Fruit that was sung by Billie Holiday. Now, some of you maybe have never heard of this song, a Strange Fruit, but it was impactful and people would agree with that. Some have said that it was a declaration and the beginning of the civil rights movement. One late jazz writer, Leonard Feather, actually said that it was the first significant protest in words and music, the first unmuted cry against racism. What was this song about? Well, by the title Strange Fruit, it described a different kind of fruit that was hanging from trees in 1930 when the writer of this song, Abel Mirapol, saw black men and women hanging from these trees. And as Abel wrote, penned this poem, it was Billie Holiday that took this song and began to sing it in her nightclub in the 1930s. And many would argue that this began the movement of the Civil War long before even Rosa Parks got refused to get off of that bus. As we think about songs like this, as we consider the impact of Strange Fruit on our history and culture, the question I have for us is, what kind of impact does the gospel, the song, the tune of the gospel have upon our world history? And here in this story that we just read, we see an, a, a great impact of the gospel move into a new place. This is actually the first time the gospel enters Europe. Think about that. Let that hit you for a moment. That for the first time ever, the gospel enters this area of Macedonia. And the gospel is heard. And it changes lives. And the church is formed for the first time. And because of that, throughout history and centuries, it then comes to the U.S. And from the U.S., it goes out to Asia, to South America, to other places and we have the gospel absolutely transform our world and our world history. And as we look at this story this morning briefly, as we think about family worship this morning, I know our kids sitting there, I want us to be able to think about how does this impact us? Back two years ago, we began to really commit to church planting. If we were to plant a church in two, three, four, five years, what kind of church do we want? How does the gospel actually impact a church plant? But actually, even before we think about that, how does that impact us? How does it impact us as members, as, as the family of Restoration Community Church? How does this actually play out in our lives? Every single day, in the mundane routines that we live, as we see each other in community groups, as we see each other outside of church and in church, how does the gospel impact us and, our, and the world that's looking upon us? Three brief things that I want us to look at. First is the inclusivity of the gospel. The inclusivity of the gospel. We see three people that Luke accounts for as the gospel enters into Philippi and into Europe for the first time ever. First, 
we see this woman named Lydia. She's a seller of purple goods, and she's a wealthy businesswoman. If I were to think about our own city, it would be maybe someone like, um, I don't know, uh, Kate, uh, Kate, from Katie's Pizzeria, Katie Collar, right? Someone who is wealthy and established and has influence in our, in our city of St. Louis. This was this woman. And she was described as being a religious person, a worshiper of God. And we'll actually look at that a little later. But she was someone who was religious. And so she made her way down and she listened to Paul preaching. And from Paul preaching, she believes. And her entire household, not only her, comes to believe and is saved. Not only Lydia, but there's this slave girl that we read about, right? And this slave girl is just walking around the city and following Paul and Silas as they're preaching the gospel and as they're meeting in the synagogues and as they're praying. This demon-possessed slave girl just keeps following them and just tormenting them and becoming a real menace, actually, to Paul and Silas. And so much so that we hear, what does Luke say? Paul is greatly annoyed. <laughs> I've never been greatly annoyed by any of you. But Paul is greatly annoyed. And it's not the kind of annoyance that we actually think about. Scholars actually look into this, and what they're saying is that what he's actually annoyed by isn't her provoking, isn't her just disturbing them. He's greatly annoyed because she has suffered for so, so long. She's been possessed by demons. But not only that, she's been trafficked. She's a fortune teller, and because she's a fortune teller, people have basically taken over her life. And they basically profit off of her. And so she's not only demon-possessed, but she's trafficked. And because of this great annoyance, right, because of the long-suffering that she's experienced as he looks upon her, he shared, Paul shares the gospel with her, and she is saved, and she is freed. But the third person we see is this jailer. Now, because Paul and Silas have basically stripped the men who have owned her and profited off of her and no longer demon-possessed and as a fortune teller and now is a believer and follower of Jesus, they're angry, right? Because they've lost money. They've lost their income. And so what do they do? They get Paul and Silas, they, take, they drag him into court, and they begin to beat him with rods. And after they're done beating him, they basically put him into prison, him and Silas. And it's here they encounter this jailer. And in the midst of Paul and Silas, who have been greatly beaten, as they're imprisoned, unable to share the gospel in the city, what do we hear or what do we read about them? They are singing hymns, and they're praying to God. This is what they do in the midst of their suffering and hardship. Now the jailer, as he watches over all those that are imprisoned in there, a great earthquake comes upon and strikes the region of Macedonia, including Philippi. So strong of an earthquake that the doors fling open, their shackles are loosened, and for whatever reason, this jailer maybe has been impacted or hit by rocks or whatever in that prison, and he goes unconscious. But when he wakes up, he sees the doors flung open, and he grabs his own sword and is about to kill himself. Why? Because 
If any prisoner escapes, that jailer who oversees the prisoners receives their punishment. And instead of wanting to be in prison for the rest of his life or murdered at the hands of the Roman government, what, he do, what, he do, what does he do? He's about to kill himself with his own sword. And in that moment, Paul sees that happens and tells him to stop. And he says, we are all here, not just me and Silas, but every single prisoner is still here, even though we're unshackled. And seeing and hearing the songs that have been sung, the prayers lifted up to this God, seeing that they are still staying in the prison so that this jailer does not die, what does he ask of Paul? What must I do to be saved? And him and his household, after hearing the gospel, believe. These, through these three men and women that the church is established, what I want us to see here is that there is no Christian type. You know, if you're dating, whether as a student or as, a, as an adult, what do you always get from people, right? The question is always, what is your type? What kind of person are you looking for? Well, with the gospel, there is no type. We see a wealthy businesswoman. We see someone who is trafficked who is destitute, who is marginalized. And we see a blue-collar government worker all come to faith. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel that transforms people and brings people together as the church of God. There is no Christian type. I loved what Ollie shared from his testimony this morning. To be able to go to a place like Chattanooga, only seven, eight hours away. And to be able to experience the gospel in different ways. To hear the doxology sung in a different way. To hear different gospel songs worshiping the same God. To see different kinds of people, both marginalized and those who are working, those who are in places of influence. You see, this is the beauty of the gospel. I remember as a kid, as a little kid, I went to a Korean, all-Korean church because my dad was a pastor of this Korean church. And, and as a little kid, you know what I thought? I thought all Koreans were Christian. <laughs> Any of you ever think that? Maybe if you're, uh, I thought every Korean was a Christian. And then when I first met my first Korean that wasn't a Christian, I was like, oh, they don't go to church, Dad. Like, what in the world? But here we get to experience, our children get to experience different colors. People of different socioeconomic backgrounds, different stages of life, who love the Lord and worship. That is the inclusivity of the gospel. And the question I have for us, is this true of us? Who are the people you hang out with? Who are the people you go out to eat lunch after with? I loved last week going to a farewell party. And at her farewell party, as I was driving home, I told my wife, I'm like, that was the most random group of people I've ever been with in a very positive way because you had people of all different backgrounds, different stages of life, old and young, together celebrating this, this woman's life here in St. Louis before she left. I thought that was beautiful. And how do we continue to reflect the gospel that says it isn't only for a certain type, but it is for all.
second thing we have to see here as we look at this beautiful story of the church being planted in Philippi is that the gospel is one of pursuit. It is the pursuit of the gospel. What did Lydia, this slave girl, and the jailer do to believe? What did they do? They did absolutely nothing. God opened up their hearts of all three to receive the gospel of the good news of Jesus. It was God. Lydia. God sends Paul and Silas into Europe for the first time. And as they're preaching the gospel, Lydia hears and believes. The slave girl. It's as she's greatly annoying Paul and Silas. Following them. Annoying them. Paul and Silas coming into the city, she comes to believe and set free from her demonic possession. And the jailer, it's God who sends this earthquake. And because of this earthquake, he comes to ask, what must I do to be saved? You see, God saves. God pursues. God is the one that comes to seek and save the lost. We heard in our assurance of forgiveness, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, this this morning, if you are someone who has been changed by the gospel inside out, where you now follow Jesus, we must remember that you did not do it. God did. He pursued you. That's our story. Last week when NJ, who's our RUF intern, came and shared about what he's been up to, a couple of us got to go to lunch with him. And he was just asking us about our calling to ministry. But it also reminded me of my call to follow Jesus. And it was such a good exercise. I hadn't done it in a while, but it was such a good exercise for me to go to share about my story. And if you don't know my story, just in, in, in a simple way, I ran as far away from God as possible. <laughs> I tried to run away from God as much as I could. I would have in college said I wasn't a Christian. I was probably agnostic. And I did everything I could to run away. But it was God. It was God who kept prodding my heart. When I felt like I was the farthest away from God, he was actually right there poking me prodding me, reminding me of the gospel, reminding me of the stories I heard as in Sunday school, reminding me of the ways that different mentors and youth pastors loved me. And it was through God's prodding, his spirit that kept just poking at me, pricking at me. Even when I wanted to run away, actively, intentionally, purposefully, God kept coming after me. And that's our story. God is the one who pursues. And for us, I think it's important for each and every single one of us here to replay that story. Rehearse your story. Write it down. Write it in your journal. Share it with a friend, even a non-Christian, someone who is other than Christian, someone who is your neighbor, a friend, a family member. Tell them your story. But remembering that God's pursuit of us does not lead to passivity. Remember that. Doesn't mean we don't do anything because God is the one who pursues. No, we don't know who God pursues. And what God is calling us to is to pursue our neighbors. 
Pursue our friends. Pursue your coworker. Pursue your children. And share your story. Share of the ways that the gospel impacts us. Live it out, as we just heard from the missions team. In the ways that God has shaped us, may that be the story we share and pursue with others. As pursued ones, we are called to pursue. And we see Paul, of all people, do that, right? Paul, who was pursued by God on the Damascus Road, now is pursuing everybody. And that is our story as well. He's not only God of pursuit, but we see through the, the gospel that it is freedom that is offered to us. Freedom. Each of these three individuals have experienced freedom in life because of the gospel. You look at Lydia. Luke specifically says that she is a worshiper of God. And what that means is that she was a religious person. She knew her Hebrew Bible. She would actually go to synagogue. And she would participate in prayers. She was a religious person. But religion does not save you. Religion says that if I do these things, I earn my way to salvation. I earn God's love and affection, and I am now accepted. But you see, that's not the gospel. Sometimes we think about a mountain, right? And we think that God is on top of a mountain, and we need to make our way to the top of the mountain. As long as it takes, as hard as we try, with all the good that we do, Good grades, good child who loves their parents well and obeys them, who gets a good job, who goes to church, who reads their Bible, who prays, all of this. But the reality is we will never make it to the top of the mountain. And the Lord, our God, knows this. And what does he do? He doesn't ask us to make our way up to the mountain. He comes down the mountain. And he meets us where we're at. That is the gospel. And here, this woman, this wealthy businesswoman who was a religious person, gets it. Gets it as she hears the gospel. And is set free from all the religion, all the laws, all the rules. And now says, it's nothing that I've done. God has pursued me. And it frees her from the law of bondage. And frees her to love God because of what God has done for her. See, that's what the gospel is. It says, I don't do anything. God first loved me when? When I was a sinner. When I was enemies with God. Yet he still came and died for me. And because of that, now I, because of what the gospel has done to me, I want to love the Lord. I want to live for him. I want to pursue others. Yikes. I'm excited. I want to do these things because of what God has done for me. You see, she's freed. She's freed from thinking that it's just going to church and reading the Bible and doing good things. She's freed from that. But we see with the slave girl as well, she's trapped. She's in bondage, both through the, the societal structures of men who own her and traffic her, but also of demon possession, of the spiritual bondage. And what happens? Because of the gospel of Jesus that Paul and Silas share, she is set free. 
She's free from being captive to her demon possession and from, from the societal higher structures of what has been placed upon her. And she's no longer trapped but liberated. What are you trapped from? Trapped from disastrous, hopeless marriages? Trapped in your own addictions? Trapped even in maybe just your hopelessness and depression and sadness? What we see here is that the gospel frees us as it did this slave girl who was trapped and, and held hostage. This is what the gospel does for us. But we see it also with the jailer. Isn't it just ironic with the jailer? He's the freed one. And Paul and Silas are the ones who are shackled. But what's actually described in the way Luke shares their account? The jailer is the one who's imprisoned. And it's Paul and Silas who are freed and experiencing freedom even though they're in prison and held in shackles. They're singing songs of joy. They're singing hymns with joy and gladness. They're praying to the Lord. And even when they're set free, they just stay there because they are free in Christ. And this jailer sees the freedom the gospel brings, right? Paul doesn't have to say a word. He lives out the gospel. He sings songs in the midst of suffering. He sings, he prays to the Lord with gladness and joy in the midst of real hardship. And the jailer sees this. He sees them sit in there even though they could have left and put the burden and, and, and death sentence upon the jailer. And because of the beauty of the gospel that is lived out in the midst of suffering and hardship by Paul and Silas, he goes, how can I be saved? And in the moment where he's about to kill himself, the gospel frees him to a life of eternal joy and gladness. Do you remember a couple of years ago on um, America's Got Talent? There was that woman named Nightbird she went by. And as she went on to that stage, she was going on to that stage with a 2% chance of living because cancer had basically just taken over her entire body. And what does she sing? She sings an original song that she penned. And the chorus of the song is, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. It's okay. Because she finds her security in Christ. She is set free even though cancer has ravaged her body. She finds freedom because of the gospel she believes in. And someone like a cynic like Simon Cowell, right, is absolutely in tears and emotional and shook because of the way that she lives her life and the song that she sings, a song full of joy and trust and security. In the midst of adversity, we can have joy. And that's the freedom that the gospel offers you and me. A few years ago, I read a book called Gentlemen in Moscow. And I just actually, someone told me yesterday that they're making it to a miniseries. It's a beautiful book by Amor Towles. And the book setting is actually in the upheaval of the Russian Empire when the Soviet Union is about to be established. And it's a fictional story, and it's of this main character named Count Rustav. And he's sentenced to death in a hotel for the rest of his life. 
he sent to this hotel where he would live out the rest of his life in this little or in this large hotel. But he becomes this father figure for this young girl who's also there. And in this particular scene, as they, as they grow together in this hotel, sentenced to life, she becomes this beautiful pianist. And he escapes this hotel so that he could see her play the piano because she, he's never hurt. And this is the account as it's written, as, she, as he, Count Rustav, hears her daughter, figurative daughter, play the piano. At the sound of the first measure, the count takes two steps back, opus nine, number two in E-flat major. As she completed the first iteration of the melody in a perfect pianissimo and transitioned to the second with its suggestion of rising emotional force, the count took another two steps back and found himself sitting in a chair. In listening to Sophia play, the count had left the realm of knowing and entered the realm of astonishment. He had left the realm of knowing and entered the realm of astonishment. See, we have the tune of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does it take for us to leave the realm of knowing the gospel to a place we enter the realm of astonishment? of amazement that transforms us from the inside out and makes us people who actually transform others. Well, we do that by looking to the gospel. We look to this beautiful, palpable, amazing story of what Jesus has done for you and for me. When we think about the inclusivity of gospel, didn't Jesus come for all? From the religious leaders, the most influential to those who are marginalized and invisible. He went to the lepers, to the prostitutes, to the Pharisees. He went to the working class, to the fishermen, to the tax collectors. He went to the demon-possessed. He went to the prostitute. He went to all. And when we think about the pursuit of the gospel, isn't that what Jesus did? He entered into people's homes. He went to Zacchaeus in that tree. He went from the top of the mountain and took on flesh and came down to our earth, became man and suffered and died for you and me. He pursued us. And when we look at the beautiful gospel, it definitely frees us because the ultimate example or the ultimate act that God did for us was he went to that cross and died for us so that his blood will forgive us and free us from the bondage of sin, from our guilt, our condemnation, our shame, our hatred of ourselves, the addictions that we carry, all that we experience that sin has marred and broken and tarnished. He sets us free because of what he has done on the cross for you and for me. So let's sing songs of joy and show the world this astonishing gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the beautiful picture of the gospel that you have shown through your Son, Jesus Christ. So as we come to the table, Lord, may you remind us of that. But more than just remind us of that, Lord, I pray that you would nourish us through these ordinary means of bread and of wine so that we might be able to be strengthened from the inside out 
and be able to live out this gospel and leave the realm of knowing to the realm of astonishment. Only you can do that. So help us now as we come to the table, as you feed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.